Escape Pod, 391. April 11th, 2013. Making my entrance again with my usual flair. By Ken Schools. Escape Pod. I'm Alistair, the Cadago to Norm's Crichton. Just without the... Actually, you know what? I'm, I'm going to leave spoiler space. I'm, I'm leaving spoiler space. I'm leaving it there. Years later, I am avoiding Farscape spoilers. That's... That's how good it is. And speaking of things which are just that good, this week's story comes to us from Ken Scholes. Ken's an American fantasy writer who's got an interesting background. He's served in both the Army and Navy, holds a history degree, worked as a clergyman briefly, and even more briefly as a label gun repairman, and also managed non-profits for ten years. Ken's someone you want on your team when the zombie apocalypse comes, is, is what we're saying. Ken's been here twice before as well, with episode 146, Edward Bear in the Very Long Walk, and episode 187, Summer in Paris, Light from the Sky. He's also appeared in numerous magazines and anthologies like Realms of Fantasy, Polyphony 6, and Weird Tales. Fairwood Press published his first collection of stories, Long Walks, Lost Flights, and Other Strange Journeys, and he's also published Lamentation, the first book in a five-book series called The Psalm of Isaac. Ken currently lives in Gresham, Oregon, with his amazing wonder wife Jen, two cats, five guitars, and oh, oh, so many books. As for narration this week, say hi to Bill. If you listen to the Metamore City podcast, you'll know his voice, and this is one of his first jobs out in the wider podcast of us, which is a word there. By day, he works in a library where he's in charge of all things with plugs and the people who, from time to time, use them correctly, and by night, he writes, fights crime, spends time with his wife, two children, and two dogs. So, get ready to take a package somewhere interesting, because it's story time. Making My Entrance Again with My Usual Flair by Ken Scholes No one ever asks a clown at the end of his life what he really wanted to be when he grew up. It's fairly obvious. No one gets hijacked into the circus. We race to it, the smell of hot dogs leading us in, our fingers aching for the sticky pull of taffy, the electric shock of pink cotton on our tongue. Ask a lawyer and he'll say when he was a kid he wanted to be an astronaut. Ask an accountant he'll say he wanted to be a fireman. I am a clown. I've always wanted to be a clown, and I will die a clown if I have my way. My name is Merton D. Kamal. The Kamal comes from my father. Never met the man, so I have no idea how he came by it. Mom got the Merton bit from some monk she used to read who wrote something like this. We learn humility by being humiliated often. Given how easily and how frequently Kamal is pronounced camel, and given how the D just stands for D, you can see that she wanted her only child to be absolutely filled to the brim with humility. My mom is a deeply spiritual woman. But enough about her. This is my story. Merton, the ringmaster and owner Rufus P. Stowell said, It's just not working out. I was pushing 40. Lost some weight and everyone knows kids love a chubby clown. I'd also taken up drinking, which didn't go over well right before a show. 
So suddenly I found myself without prospects, and I turned myself towards home, riding into Seattle by bus on a cold November night. Mom met me at the bus stop. She had no business driving, but she came out anyway. She was standing on the sidewalk next to the station wagon when she saw me. We hugged. I'm glad you're home, she said. I lifted my bag into the back. Thanks. You hungry? Not really. We went to Denny's anyway. Whenever my mom wanted to talk, we went to Denny's. It's where she took me to tell me about boys and girls. It's where she took me to tell me that my dog had been hit by a car. So, what are you going to do now? She cut and speared a chunk of meatloaf, then dipped it into her mashed potatoes and gravy before raising it to her mouth. I don't know. I guess I'll fatten up, quit drinking, and get back in the business. I watched her left eyebrow twitch, a sure sign of disapproval. I hefted my double bacon cheeseburger, then paused. Why? What do you think I should do? She leaned forward. She brought her wrinkled hand up and cut my cheek with it. Then she smiled. I think you've already tried the clown thing, Merton. Why don't you try something different? I grinned. I always wanted to be a sword swallower, but you wouldn't let me. What about insurance? Well, it gets steep. The swords are real, Mom. Her eyebrow twitched again. I'm being serious. Remember Nancy Keller? Of course I did. I'd lost my virginity with her back in 11th grade. It was my second most defining moment that year. Three days later, Rufus P. Stowell's traveling big top rolled into town, and my first most defining moment occurred. They said I was a natural. I had the look and the girth. Would I be interested in an internship? I left a note for Nancy in her mailbox, thanking her for everything in great detail, hugged my mom goodbye, and dropped out of high school to join the circus. Mom was still waiting for me to answer. Yes, I remember her. Well, she's some big mucky-muck now at Careco. And? I took a bite of the cheeseburger. And I told her you were coming home and asked her if she'd interview you. I nearly choked. <laughs> you did what? I asked her if she'd interview you for a job. I had no idea what to say. So the next morning, Mom took me down to J.C. Penney's and bought me my first suit in 30 years. That afternoon, she dropped me downtown in front of the Carico building, waved goodbye, and drove away. The Carico building was new. I'd visited a few times over the years, had watched buildings come and buildings go, but I had never seen anything like this. It looked like a giant glass Rubik's Cube tilted precariously in a martini glass full of green jello. Inside, each floor took on the color coding of the various policies they offered. Life insurance was green, auto, a deep blue can't remember what color long-term disability was. Each color had been painfully worked out, according to a plaque near the door, by a team of eminent European corporate psychologists. Supposedly, it would enhance productivity by reducing the depression inherent within the insurance industry. While I was reading the plaque, a man stepped up to me. He was as tan as a Californian, wearing sunglasses and a Hawaiian shirt despite impending rain. I went back to reading. Excuse me, he said. Yes? Have you seen a monkey around here? I shook my head, not really paying attention to the question. Sorry. He smiled. Thanks, anyway. I went inside. I rode three escalators, two elevators, and talked to seven receptionists. I sat in a chair that looked like plastic, but was really made of foam. I filled out long and complicated application forms. An hour later, someone took me up to an office at the top of the highest point of the inside of the glass Rubik's Cube. Nancy Keller looked up. She smiled until my escort closed the door on her way out. Merton D. Camel.
she said, stretching each syllable. Kemal. Hi, Nancy. The view from her office was spectacular. The walls were glass framed in steel, and I could see the city spread out around me in a wide view that pulled at my stomach. The office had a modern-looking desk in the middle of it, a few chairs and some potted plants. Surprised to see you after so long. Back from clowning around? I am. You look good. And she did. Her legs were still long, but her hair was short, and she traded her Van Halen tank top for a crisp blue suit. She ignored my compliment and pointed to another of those foam chairs. Let's get this over with. I sat. She sat. I waited, trying to ignore the places where my wool suit created urgent itching. She studied my application, then she studied me. I kept waiting. Finally, she spoke. This interview, she said, consists of two questions. She leaned forward, and I realized the button on her suit coat had popped open to reveal more cleavage than I remembered her having. First question. Do you remember the day you left the circus three days after our special moment? She made little quote marks in the air when she said special. I nodded. I do. I left you a note. I grinned. I think I even said thank you in some detail. She nodded, too. Second question. Did you ever stop to think that maybe, just maybe, my father would be the one getting the mail? She stood and pushed a button on her desk. I stood, too. Thank you for coming, Mr. Camel. Patrice will see you out. She extended her hand. I shook it, and it was cold. Later, I was working on my third bowl of ice cream and looking over the twelve steps when her assistant called with the offer. It's easy, Nancy Keller said again. I wasn't sure I'd heard her right. I want you to drive a monkey to our branch office in New Mexico. That's my job? She nodded. If you don't futz it up, there'll be another... Another monkey? No, another job. This monkey's one of a kind. And you're sure you don't want me to just take him to the airport and put him on a plane? I'm sure. I should have asked why, but didn't. Okay, when do I leave? As soon as you get your mom's car, she noticed my open mouth, this monkey needs as much anonymity as possible. I'm traveling with an incognito monkey in a 20-year-old station wagon. Yes, you'd better get changed. Changed? I knew I'd worn the suit two days in a row, but I figured the first day didn't really count. You can't be seen like that. What would a guy in a suit need with a monkey? I need a clown for this one. I was opening my mouth to question all this when Patrice came in with a thick envelope. Nancy took it, opened it, started ruffling through the $100 bills. I'll get changed, get the car. Be back in an hour, I said. Nancy smiled. It was a sweet smile, one that reminded me of 80s music and her parents' ratty couch. Thanks, Merton. The monkey and I drove southeast, zigzagging highways across Washington, crossing over the Cascades into drier, colder parts of the state. There was little snow on the pass, and the miles went by quickly. The monkey was in an aluminum crate with little round holes in it. They'd loaded him into the back in their underground parking garage. Two men in suits stood by the door, watching. You shouldn't need anything else, Merton, Nancy said. He's pretty heavily sedated. He ought to sleep all the way through. I looked at the map, tracing my finger along the route she'd marked in blue highlighter. That's around 1,700 miles, Nancy. I did some math in my head. At least two days, and that's if I really push it. Just bring his crate into your hotel room, 
discreetly, Merton. She smiled again. You'll be fine. He'll be fine, too. Naturally, I'd said okay, climbed into the car, and set out for Waswell, New Mexico. When we crossed into Oregon, the monkey woke up. I knew this because he asked me for a cigarette. I swerved onto the shoulder, mashing the brakes with one clown-chewed foot while hyperventilating. Just one, he said. Please? I couldn't get out of the car fast enough. After a few minutes of pacing by the side of the road, convincing myself that it was the result of quitting the booze-cold turkey, I poked my head back into the car. Do you say something? I asked, holding my breath. Silence. Releasing my breath, I climbed back into the car. I didn't think so. I started the car back up, eased it onto the road. I laughed at myself. <laughs> Talking monkeys, I said, shaking my head. Monkeys can't talk, the monkey said. Then he yawned loudly. I braked again. He chuckled. Look, pal, I'm no monkey. I just play one on TV. I glanced up into the rearview mirror. A single dark eye blinked through one of the holes. Really? He snorted. No, I don't. Where are we supposed to be going? Roswell, New Mexico. And what does that tell you? I shrugged. You got me. Let's just say I'm not from around here. Where are you from? But it was sinking in. Of course, I didn't believe it. I had laid aside the cold turkey alcohol withdrawal theory at this point, was wondering now if maybe I was tilting more toward a psychotic break theory. Unimportant, but I'm not a monkey. Okay, then. Why don't you just go back to sleep? I'm not tired. Just woke up. Why don't you let me out of this box and give me a cigarette? I don't smoke. Let's stop somewhere, then. A gas station. I looked back at him in the rearview mirror. For someone that's not from around here, you sure know an awful lot. More suspicion followed. You speak English pretty good, too. Well, the monkey said, I speak it well, and I may not be from here, but I've certainly spent enough time on this little rock you call home. Really? Definitely a psychotic break. I needed medication. Maybe cognitive therapy, too. What brings you out this way? I'm a spy. A monkey spy? I thought we'd already established that I'm not a monkey. So you just look like one. I gradually gave the car some gas, and we slipped back onto the highway. Exactly. Why? I have no idea. You'd have to ask my boss. I pushed the station wagon back up to 75, watching for road signs and wondering if any of the little towns out here would have a psychiatrist. Where's your boss? Don't know, the monkey said. Gave him the slip when I defected. You defected? Of course I defected. Why? Got a better offer. It went on like that. We made small talk, and Oregon turned into Idaho. I never asked his name. He never offered. Found a Super 8 outside Boise, and after paying, hauled his crate into the room. So, you gonna let me out? I don't think that'd be such a good idea, I told him. Well, can you at least get us a pizza and some beer? Pizza, yes. Beer, no. I called it in and channel surfed till it arrived. The holes presented a problem, and I couldn't just eat in front of them. I went to open the crate. It was locked. One of those high-powered combination jobs. Odd, isn't it? Yeah, I said. A bit. He sighed. I'm sure it's for my own protection. Or mine, I said. He chuckled. Yeah, I'm quite the badass, as you can see. That's when I picked up the phone and called Nancy. She'd given me her home number. Hey, I said. 
Merton, what's up? Well, I'm in Boise. How's the package? Fine, but... I wasn't sure what to say. But what? Well, I went to check on the monkey and the crate's locked. What's the combination? Is the monkey awake? Her voice sounded alarmed. I looked at the crate, with the eye peeking out. Um, no, I don't think so. Has anything... She paused, choosing her word carefully. Unusual happened? I nearly said, you mean like a talking space alien disguised as a monkey? Instead, I said, no, no, not at all, not really. I knew I needed more or she wouldn't believe me. Well, the guy at the front desk looked at me a little funny. What do you look like? Old? Bored? Like he didn't expect to see a clown in his lobby? I'm sure he's fine. I nodded, even though she couldn't see me. So, about that combination? You don't need it, Merton. Call me when you get to Roswell. The phone clicked and she was gone. In the morning, I loaded the monkey back into the car and we pointed ourselves toward Utah. We picked up our earlier conversation. So you defected to an insurance company? But I knew what he was going to say. That's no insurance company. Government? You'd know better than I would, he said. I was asleep through most of that bit. But you're the one who defected. He laughed. But I didn't defect to them. You didn't? No, of course not. Do you think I want to be locked in a metal box in the back of a station wagon on my way to Roswell, New Mexico, with an underweight clown who doesn't smoke? I shrugged. Then what? There was a guy. He was supposed to meet me in Seattle before your wacky friends got me with the old tag and bag routine. He represents certain other interested parties. He'd worked up a bit of an incognito gig for me in exchange for some information on my previous employers. I felt my eyebrows furrow. Other interested parties? Let's just say your little rock is pretty popular these days. Do you really think the cattle mutilations, abductions, anal probes, and crop circles were all done by the same little green men? I never thought about it before. Space is pretty big, and everyone has their shtick. I nodded. Okay, that makes sense, I guess. Except for the part where I was still talking to a monkey and he was talking back. It was quiet now. The car rolled easily on the highway. Sure could use a cigarette. They're bad for you. They'll kill you. Jury's still out on that, the monkey said. I'm not exactly part of your collective gene pool, he paused. Besides, I'm pretty sure it doesn't matter. It doesn't? What do you think they're going to do to me in Roswell? The monkey had a point. The next truck stop, I pulled off and went inside. I came out with a pack of Marlboros and pushed one through the little hole. He reversed it, pointing an end out to me so I could light it. He took a long drag. Oh, that's nice, he said. Thanks. You're welcome. Suddenly my shoulders felt heavy. As much as I knew, there was something dreadfully wrong with me, some wire that had to be burned out in my head. I felt sad. Something bad, something experimental was probably going to happen to this monkey. And whether or not he deserved it, I had a role in it. I didn't like that at all. Have you seen a monkey around here? The California tan man had asked me two days ago in front of the Caraco building. I looked up. Hey, I saw that guy, the one in Seattle. What was the gig he had for you? Witness protection type thing? Sort of. Lay low, stay under everyone's radar. Where would a monkey lay low? I asked myself. Like what? I said. A zoo? Screw zoos. Concrete cage and a tire swing. Who wants that? What then? 
Cigarette smoke trailed out of the holes in his crate. It's not important, really. Come on, tell me. But I knew now. Of course I knew. How could I not? But I waited for him to say it. Well, the monkey said, ever since I landed on this rock, I've wanted to join the circus. Exactly, I thought, and I knew what I had to do. I'll be back, I said. I got out of the car and walked around to the truck stop. Didn't take long to find what I was looking for. The guy had a mullet and a pickup truck. In the back of the pickup truck's window was a rifle rack, and then the rifle rack a rifle. Hunting season or not, this was Idaho. Pulled that wad of bills from my wallet, and his eyes went wide. He'd probably never seen a clown with so much determination in his stride and cash in his fist. I bought that rifle from him, drove out to the middle of nowhere, and shot the lock off that crate. When the door opened, a small, hairy hand reached out, followed by a slender, hairy arm, hairy torso, hairy face. He didn't quite look like a monkey, but it was close enough. He smiled, his three black eyes shining like pools of oil. Then the third eye puckered in on itself and disappeared. I should at least try to fit in, he said. You want me to drop you anywhere? I asked him. I think I'll walk, stretch my legs a bit. Suit yourself. We shook hands. I gave him the pack of cigarettes, the lighter, and all but one of the remaining hundred-dollar bills. I'll see you around, I said. I didn't call Nancy until I got back to Seattle. When I did, I told her what happened. Well, my version about what happened. And I didn't feel bad about it either. She tried to use me in her plot against a fellow circus aficionado. I've never seen anything like it, I said. We were just outside of Boise early in the morning, and there was this light in the sky. I threw in a bit about missing time and how I thought something invasive and wrong might have happened to me. I told her they also took the monkey. She insisted that I come over right away. She and her husband had a big house on the lake, and when I got there, she was already pretty drunk. I'm a weak man. I joined her, and we polished off the bottle of tequila. Her husband was out of town on business, and somehow we ended up having sex on the leather couch in his den. It was better than the last time, but still nothing compared to a high-wire trapeze act or a lion tamer or an elephant that can dance. Still, I didn't complain. At the time, it was nice. Three days later, my phone rang. Merton D. Kamal? A familiar voice asked. Yes. I need a clown for my act. Does it involve talking monkeys? I asked with a grin. Monkeys can't talk, the monkey said. So I wrote Nancy a note, thanking her in great deal for the other night. After putting it in her mailbox, I took a leisurely stroll down to the Greyhound station. When the man at the ticket counter asked me where I was headed, I smiled. The greatest show on earth, I said. And I know he understood, because he smiled back. I love this. I love this in so many ways, and I will tell you of them. Firstly, because I have a lot of respect and time for big people who are paid to be jolly. Clowns have one of the hardest jobs in the world, like pro wrestlers. Doubt that? Ask Mick Foley how his knees are. The fights are fake, the accidents and injuries aren't. And like pro wrestlers, clowns are called on to constantly put their bodies and dignity on the line for amusement. And they do so every single time. Even though, if their bodies aren't hurt every single time on some level, their pride is. Why? Same reason Ken wrote this story and submitted it to us. 
same reason I'm here, same reason you're here, community, the feeling of belonging. When you do something you love, when you participate in something you love, when you do something that makes you feel at home, then the hard stuff is, well, it's still really hard, which sucks, but it's also minimized. When you do something you love, you always know where North is. You always know how to get home. And the bad stuff, when it comes, and it does, sucks, but it has edges. Performers bruise easily, and after a fairly lousy couple of weeks professionally, I can relate to the main character here, and especially his love of performing. I can also relate to the monkey, because the monkey's cool. What the monkey is, and who he is, and what he wants, is is just glorious. There are echoes of so many things here for me. Basically all the UFO stuff I inhaled in the 1990s. The bits of the movie Paul that worked. Hunter S. Thompson. Was it just me who had a we can't stop here, this is bad country moment at one point. If it was, I'm fine with that. And weirdly, Cory Doctorow's crap hound. I love that story and I love this one for very similar reasons. Because the idea of relations with aliens being based on them liking the circus liking the same kind of kitschy pop culture flots and crap that we do it's comforting it feels right somehow it feels elegant and then of course there's the ending the smell of the crowd the roar of the grease paint <laughs> the infinite bounds of space exchanged for the infinite always changing landscape of performance circus the final frontier I love it great work Ken thank you and now, ladies and gentlemen, a man so brilliant, so focused and dedicated that in Greece he spent a year in silence just to better understand the sound of a whisper. Here's Nathaniel with the feedback. Greetings and salutations, Escapodians. Assistant Editor Nathan here with the feedback for episode 386, finished by Robert Reed. This was the story of a man with a robot body who will hold it against you if you look lonely. Yuck, yuck, yuck. In a world where dead people can live on in an unchanging freeze frame of their final emotional state, can an old lecherous thought find true love? Opinion was solidly positive, with a variety of emotional responses ranging from amused to mildly horrified, which to me is pretty much the ideal reaction. Jade Prairie said, My thoughts keep returning to this episode. Love the double meaning of the title, finished as in polished or perfected, or as in done and ended. Also, the politics of Finnish citizens, their place in society, and the growing power of the industry. Could Finnish persons come to be the majority? Would this path in life come to be the norm? Would everyone get hooked into a life of debt through unending upgrades? Would all children be born of artificially incubated, frozen reproductive cells? Max, E to the I Pyramide, meanwhile, brought some of that escape pod forum overthinking a plate of beans to bear on the final outcomes of the situation posited by the narrative. See, the beauty of pyramid schemes is their exponential growth. So the day before, a week or a month or however long the process takes, but before every person on the planet is finished, half of them are not. So the changes will be sudden. What changes? Well, the food industry, perhaps the world's largest, will collapse on itself. Nobody needs to eat anymore. The medical industry, also one of the world's largest, will cease to exist because medical care is now provided in the form of spare parts and repairs. The clothing industry will survive for a little longer, but not much. Who needs new clothes? Just don't wash your current ones. It won't get dirty, not spilling food on them. It won't get smelly from sweat. Just don't go outside when it's raining. It's not like you have a job to go to. What's next? Entertainment and the arts? 
can both rely on creativity and innovation, and with everybody's mind in a crystal, that's very hard to do. The same thing will happen to the tech sector without innovation. Politics will die, perhaps for the best in this scenario. Everyone knows all the politicians on the scene, and they will always have the same views and the same ideas. No compromises. At some point, people will just stop voting. Besides, their true allegiance would lie elsewhere. See, at this point, the company would own every single person on the planet. They own them body and mind. There is no way for you to work off your debt since you can't bring new people into the pyramid. And nobody's earning money anyway. Picture that. An entire planet of people, billions of people, controlled by a single company, by the board of directors of that company, by the chairman of the board. We are the Borg. Resistance is futile. You will be finished. And that's all we have for this week. Join us next week when we review the comments for episode 387, about which we will feel exactly the same. Same as this week. Exactly the same. Again and again. Forever. We rely on you, you volunteer army of heroes, heroines, space raccoons, and sentient trees. Yes, a Guardians of the Galaxy joke. That's how far ahead of the curve we are to fund us. Seriously, without you, we don't get to pay our server costs, or we don't get to pay our authors. And Ken served in two of the armed forces. We, we won that check to ship on time. If you liked this story, please go to escapepod.org and make a donation. I promise each cent is appreciated and put to very good use. EscapePod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, and will return next week with Aftermaths by Lois McMaster Bougeau, narrated by the mighty Matt Weller. Before then, our quote is a line I found in a Macklemore song a little while back. A life lived for art is never a life wasted. See you next time, and remember, have fun. <laughs>